Hello everyone, this is Barbara. Hi, and this is Pat. We are so excited to launch our first podcast episode, The Middle. This project was a brainchild of mine a few months back. I ran the project by Globe Gazette editor Jackie Smith back in January, who loved the idea and gave her stamp of approval. If you are like Pat and I, we are ready to have civil political dialogue. The art of conversation needs to have a comeback in our country. We are starting with the idea that maybe, just maybe, this will reach thousands of you across this state and country to copy. For myself, it was the lack of even watching a news outlet show with interviews from people on both sides of the aisle and observing that they were talking over one another, raising their voices, and in some instances, showing a side on national TV that are probably that they are probably regretting. So with each podcast, we will be giving our conservative view, which is me, and my very liberal point of view. We will also be coming to the middle on each topic to show our listeners that whatever political topic you discuss, there is a middle. So I have to say that I am absolutely thrilled to be invited by Barb to do this because I'm so concerned about the totally divisive nature of politics at the moment. I don't think it has to be. And I think that it's extremely important that we do try to find ways to find middle grounds and can work to better for the benefit of our country. We're just going to delve right into our uh, first political issue this morning, which is going to be voter laws, specifically Iowa's Senate File 413 that was recently passed in both the House and the Senate and signed into law on March 8th by Governor Reynolds. As uh, some of our listeners remember, back in 2017, Governor Branstad vote, uh, signed the voter ID law uh, that was passed um, by Iowa legislatures. Uh, later, uh, passing the law, it set a standard for other states across the country. And 2021 Senate File 413 was passed with a few changes, and we're going to delve into what those changes are right now. Uh, First one is uh, pretty simple. It's a time change. Uh, Iowa was the only state to have their polls open till 9 o'clock, so all elections in Iowa will now run from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. instead of 9 p.m. I I I guess I want to make clear right away that... um, I'm really opposed to the bill overall because there's no evidence of any real illegality or rigging in the Iowa voting process. And I don't see the real need for the changes. The only outcome I can reasonably see is a decrease in the number of people who vote. And I want to make it clear that I would be just as opposed if these kinds of restrictions were being made by Democrats as they are by Republicans. So Duly noted, yes. (laughs) Regarding the the sections on time change, there are actually um, three sections that impact time changes within the bill. And the first would shorten the number of early voting days to 20, while the second would close the poll at 8 instead of 9 p.m. And the um, third shortens the amount of time which absentee ballots can be required or requested. Now, both Barb and I work in our respective parties to encourage as many people as possible to vote. Um, These changes give Iowans less opportunities to vote. We have such a diverse and unique working set of schedules for Iowans, and childcare demands also uh, really impact when people can go vote. I think it behooves us to do everything possible 
to make voting simple and convenient for every Iowan. These restrictions may well do the opposite. While the latter might make it possible for election volunteers to get a little longer night's sleep, uh, like the others, it does have the limit potential to limit votes. Um, so on, on uh, the the subject that Pat was talking about on the time frame um, of the 29 to 20 days, that would be the absentee ballots would have to arrive by the time the polls do close on election day. And from 29 days to 20 days, uh, on early voting. I did do some research and found that there are three other states, Kansas, Rhode Island, and Tennessee with 20 days as well of an interest. There are 27 states with 19 or less days of absentee ballot voting. Um, I'm going to go through them because I think it's really important to realize that many other states have a much shorter window for voting. Um, so at 18 days, it's Washington and Oregon. 17 is Texas. 15 days is Alaska, Arkansas, North Dakota, and Colorado. 14 is Wisconsin, Louisiana, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. 13 days is West Virginia. 11 is Massachusetts. 10 days of early voting is Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, and New York. 7 days was Washington, D.C., and Oklahoma. And what I found interesting was many other states have three weeks prior to Election Day so Iowa was used to the 29 days of early absentee voting. Um, it does go down to 20. Uh, we, we, we will have to get used to the change. It is current law. So um, as I noted, there are other states who certainly have not had close to the 29 early voting days that Iowa has had in the past. So do you have anything else to add on to that, Pat? Well, one time I read that Iowa actually had 40 days and then it was reduced to 29 days, and now it's being reduced to 20. Um, it would be interesting to have the statistics that we don't have of how many Iowans vote outside of 20 days. Um, and without that information, it's a little more difficult for me to say, oh my gosh, it shouldn't be that short a period of time. I honestly don't know those figures, and I think they would need to be taken into consideration to do this. Uh, again, I, I just, I am so adamant about everyone having an equal opportunity to vote. Um, I think that that's the most critical component of democracy that we have. And I, I'm really skeptical about anything that imposes limits like this the one thing I will say about Iowa's changes is that they are relatively minor compared to the changes that are being suggested by some other states where there is um, clear-cut racial bias um, and, and much more draconian measures than, than Iowa is proposing. And I think that you and I can both agree on that we're really lucky and blessed that we do live in a state uh, where we don't have a lot of voter fraud, although we're going to kind of delve into that. Um, voter fraud does exist. Fraud exists on every level in society that we know because we do have bad actors. Um, we're going to touch next on um, the county auditors that will be held accountable. Um, so to ensure that all county auditors are held accountable, a new section details that county auditors can be charged and fined. Election rules should, should be standard across the state. 
This change was brought about because of three counties in Iowa, Lynn Johnson of Woodbury, who sent out pre-filled absentee ballot request forms with confidential voter ID information on them. In fact, Johnson County Auditor threatened to break the law, proves the need for Senate File 413. He tweeted in February of this year, quote, with the election bill being passed, I'll work on setting up my GoFundMe page. I have a pretty good idea which auditors will be fined first, end quote. Secretary of State Paul Pate uh, stated in a recent interview, quote, renegade auditors blatantly ignored the law and directive of his office by distributing pre-filled absentee ballot forms, which circumvents election security measures and invites identity theft. They knew we had already covered this topic with auditors in meetings, and I specifically communicated with these auditors, telling them not to do it. Your voter ID is like your bank PIN number. You don't send it out. It was unsolicited. They didn't even know it was coming, end quote. Um, Speaking with Secretary Paul Pate recently, he mentioned that this law will put all county auditors on notice to abide by state laws. So as far as auditors complaining about being charged with a felony, well, don't commit a crime. Americans abide by laws every day. Any one of us, Pat and myself, could be charged with a felony if we don't abide by laws. Elected officials on any level should be held accountable for committing crimes. Why would an elected county auditor be held to a different standard? Um, A random audit of every county is currently done now as required by law. And... um, You know, I just I'm a firm believer that uh, we have really great county auditors um, in the state of Iowa. Uh, Ken Klein was a long time county auditor in Mason City. Uh, He was a Republican. Now we have Adam Wedmore, who's a Democrat, and Adam is doing a great job. Oh, I agree. Uh, He he is he's going to do well for Sarah Gordo. What do you have? What are your thoughts on on that, Pat? Well, there's first of all, I agree that. The procedure should be the same everywhere. Um, I have no problem with that. But I think we also have to acknowledge that this year was absolutely non-normal. With COVID out there, I think most of the auditors who, who did things were really simply trying to make it voting easier for those who were unwilling to go to the polls. Um, it's not a problem we have seen in the past, and I sort of would assume without COVID, we would not have seen it this year either. Well, that's um, a great point, Pat. COVID certainly did throw a wrench into many elections, and um, like you said, there were many people shut in, uh, couldn't get out. Uh, how do we accommodate those who do want to vote all legal votes? Um, that, that's a very good and valid point. The other thing that that I think of is I have a sister-in-law who lives in uh, Colorado. And as I'm sure you know, Colorado and Oregon mail out ballots to every registered voter. Um, And neither has been challenged with any voter fraud. Now, I received my um, ballot request form with my name and address on it, but it did not have my ID number on it. And so... You know, no one would have been able to use that but me to identify that number. And I felt that was protection. And so um, I feel that that our auditor was probably following the rules, even though there was some objection to putting the name and address on it. Um, 
I really think that the states um, like Colorado and, and Oregon that have convenient drop boxes in a wide variety of locations, um, while this law would limit it to one drop box adjacent to an auditor's uh, office, um, might be a problem. Not in Saragorda County. We're smaller, much smaller. Polk County might be a whole different situation in terms of how many drop boxes can be placed. Um, I think that my objection here is based on, you know, looking at, at uh, all of these things that are aimed at um, more control over mail-in ballots really sort of revolves around the fact that 70% of the Iowa ballots mailed in were from Democratic voters. And I, I think this clear-cut Republican aim is sort of aimed at reducing the number of, of voters who can do mail-in voting. Um, however, um, I have no doubt if it were Democrats in the legislature and Republican, uh, politics is an ugly game, all right? And I would hate to see any party doing this in response to what the vote has been, especially when Iowa in Iowa, because despite 70% of those ballots being cast by mail, by Democrats, Republicans won this state. We, we have a Republican majority <laughs> in this state. And those of us who are Democrats have to face that. And we have to say, okay, we need a, a agenda that is going to appeal to Iowans. And if the Republicans have a stronger agenda, we're going to stay a Republican state. Um, and we have to cope with that. Um, I think we can work harder. I think we can get more Democratic votes, and I'm sure Barb thinks <laughs> she can get out more Republican <laughs> votes. But but I did see this as a direct stab at Democratic um, mail-in ballots, and, and that disturbed me. So history does show that um, Democrats do vote absentee ballot more than Republicans. District 4 has been um, read uh, more Republicans uh, registered to vote. Uh, of interest, too, uh, for the other districts in the state of Iowa, um, you know, the independent voters are right up there with yes. Republicans and Democrats. Yes. And those are the voters who, um, you know, you just wonder who, what they're thinking at, at election time, uh, who who they're focused on. So I think each party, both the Democrat and Republican Party, have the independents in their sights and trying to figure them out. How do we swing them over to our candidates and, and get oh, their vote? I, I know we do because, you know, they voted for Barack Obama. And and so you can't say, oh, well, I was just always going to be a Republican state. Plus, we're seeing some changes in, in younger voters and, and what they... Um, Which is exciting to is, see the younger... Is. And it's exciting to see them coming in and, and being interested. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, um, I would not be opposed to going to a Colorado or Oregon system. Um, if I had seen problems with those systems, you know, I have a relative in Oregon and one in Colorado, and they're very happy with their systems because it's so convenient and, and so easy. 
So I'm going to keep on that absentee ballot uh, topic that Pat's talking about. And I, I just want to talk about the history of absentee ballots, which dates back to soldiers in the Civil War. Um, President Lincoln in 1864 said, quote, we cannot have free government without free elections, end quote. Lincoln's secretary pointed out that Union soldiers couldn't vote. President Lincoln prompted states to let the soldiers cast their votes from the field. During World War II, absentee voting made the national spotlight. Both FDR and Truman wanted the soldiers to vote, thus the Soldier Act of 1942. Over 3.2 million absentee votes were cast during the war, but this expired at war's end. The Constitution, Article 1, Section 4 says, quote, it is up to each state to determine the times and places and manner of holding elections, end quote. Our founding fathers used vo voice voting until the 19th century, uh, where all eligible voters would cast their vote in public with their voices. Some states were offering this way of voting absentee ballot, but only under certain conditions. New York and Massachusetts were the first states to adopt printed ballots with candidates' names. They did copy Australia, where it was created. Over the next few decades, the Federal Voting Assistance Act of 1955 was passed, and by late 1980s, Texas was the first state to offer early in-person voting. So I think we need to remember how absentee voting and early voting came about. Um, as Pat touched on, it was used more in COVID times, which rightly so should have been used. When people are disabled, when people are um, unable to get to the polls, we still have to give them an option uh, to have their, their vote counted. Um, do you have anything to add on that history yeah, there the of the absentee? Yeah, has really changed this. Barb's got, did done a good job of uh, going through the history. But the other thing that has really changed it is that retired um, Americans are, are no longer as prone to stay in cold places in winters <laughs> as uh, they previously were. A lot of snowbirds. And there are a lot of snowbirds. Um, there are... Um, you know, this year I did the absentee ballot for the first time because I have pre-existing conditions that really mean... So I, you had never done that before in no, all of your years of voting. No, That's interesting. I have voted early, right? but I had never voted by mail-in ballot right. before. And, you know, as I get older, um, I may be more inclined to continue doing that. Um, and, and then that leads us to an, another topic that that concerns me with this um is what they're doing um with ballots from um nursing homes and assisted living facilities um the the new law requires that a ballot can only be turned in by a family member that's right. So that's Section 65. It's an unlawful return of ballot. So no person other than the registered voter or an individual who lives in the same household as a registered voter. Um, that's in Section 65. Right. And I guess what bothers me about that is that, okay, my mother's, if my mother's in a nursing home and um, I take her ballot in, do I have to prove I'm her daughter in order to turn that ballot in? Or can just anyone walk in and say, well, I'm Gertrude Larson's daughter or sister, and here's her ballot. Um, if you're going to require proof that, that you know, this is a relative or, or a caregiver, this is going to add a, a lot of work to 
what auditors' offices have to do. In addition, people in most assisted living and nursing homes can simply mail it themselves. I mean, they provide mailing opportunities there. Um, I think with a Dropbox, you know, okay, I can take my mother's ballot to a Dropbox and drop it in, and they're suggesting surveillance cameras at those places, but how do they know that this was, who, what ballot was dropped in there and by whom? So to your point, which is valid, um, the security cameras are going to be required to be at a drop box and they want those drop boxes to be at county courthouses locked and secured. The reason for that is that, is that harvest balloting, harvest harvesting of ballots um, should not be allowed. That should be unlawful. To get back on your point, does it happen in Iowa a lot? I hope it doesn't, but it does happen. It has happened in the past where people have gone into the nursing homes, gone around and harvested ballots and then taken them out of the nursing home. We don't know if they altered them. We hope they didn't. But that is one of the um, checks and balances that's in the section. No, I understand that. But I think that, that it's rather a moot point because of the way our ballots are set up. All right, so if I pick up a ballot from a nursing home for someone, and both Republicans and Democrats have done it, and I think the, the term ballot harvesting gives it sort of a negative connotation that, that may not really be justified. Um, that ballot has to be signed and filled in by the person um, it has to be placed in an envelope with signature that will match the signature on the inside and then sealed into another envelope. You know, it's a pretty complex system of security for getting this ballot to be... It, it is, Pat, and I have worked uh, in the county auditor's office um, on processing those absentee ballots, and they, they certainly have a system down, and the ones that are rejected go into a reject area, and those are looked at closer, scrutinized. Uh, the voter is called if it's before election day to come in to try to, you know, fix your ballot. It's, it's not proper. So, again, we do have a good county uh, auditor's office. I have been in the process, and I've seen it firsthand. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I just think that it's almost unenforceable because, like I said, I don't think they're going to tell me to prove I'm my mother's daughter. I don't think that that um, you know they're going to be uh, <coughs> excuse me easy ways of of enforcing that. Um, so I just see it as as sort of a unnecessary step. Um, you know, yes, re Democrats have harvested ballots if that's what you want to call it, but so have Republicans. And um, we have had no real valid proof that there has been much fraud within that process. Before we switch gears a little bit, um, is there anything on uh, Senate File 14, 413 that uh, you want to touch on that we haven't touched on yet before we move on to H.R. 1? Well, yeah, I, I want to talk about um, voter fraud. And, you know, the idea, and I think that you have some material on that, too. Um, this election got so crazy in terms of all of the claims of voter fraud that were out there. Um, 
And in, in essence, it was established that there, there was no extensive voter fraud that would have made a difference in the election. We heard that from state election officials. We heard that from Bill Barr. We heard that from the FBI. Recounts were done when they were demanded. And in every instance, state officials verified their elections as correct. Um, and that included verifications from Democratic and Republican officials. Uh, you know, the, there was just no evidence that there was extensive fraud or, or rigging. Um, no ever, and, and no claims were made in Iowa at all against the validity of the election. There's one case, of course, with Rita Hart that is still kind of hanging out there. But um, uh, what bothers me is that there are legislatures, and I don't, I'm not saying any Iowa legislators, but there are legislators still around the country have voiced the belief that the election was stolen from Trump. And um, they have worked constituents up sometimes to violent levels. I mean, they tried to stop the vote at the Capitol. And and it seems to me that, that what has happened is that all of these claims of voter fraud have actually really cut into Americans' confidence in the voting process. And so you touched you touched on uh, the Rita Hart and the Marianne Miller Meeks race, right? And you know that's really a hot topic right now. That race was certified, uh, duly certified in the state of Iowa. Um, she she was sworn in, um, took the oath of office, and uh, that to me just cannot happen. We just cannot have uh, Congress trying to take away seats that were duly certified. Uh, the powers of the states that had that. Um, for those who say that voter fraud just never happens in Iowa, um, I, I will give you two examples that I'm personally aware of. In the 2020 election, a voter came forward who did receive the wrong ballot with someone else's voter ID on it. Thankfully, the person was honest and did take it to their county auditor. And another example is a Mason City resident did call me and said they lived in their home for two years. Uh, they received a ballot for the past resident. Uh, we are very fortunate that Iowa does have secure elections for the most part and not a lot of voter fraud, but we must remember that any fraud is not a good thing. Um, you kind of touched on a few things on the federal level, so we're going to move uh, right there. Uh, so we're going to switch gears and talk about the proposed federal bill, H.R. 1, called uh, For the People for Act the people. of 2021, yes. which will do the following. Um it will send taxpayer dollars to political candidates and campaigns, grant D.C. statehood, override the state's authority over their own election systems, and impose regulations nationwide. Part of this bill does want to modernize voter registration and list maintenance procedures with electronic internet capabilities. Uh, the U.S. intelligence report on the 2020 elections came out on March 16th, just last week, which concludes that both Russia and Iran but more so Iran, carried out operations to try to interfere with our 2020 presidential election. The report goes on to say, quote, Putin aimed at undermining public confidence in the electoral process and exacerbating socio-political divisions in the United States. To sow division is a tactic to bring unrest to our country. We must stop the division and come together. 
One national intelligence officer for cyber assessed that China did take steps to undermine former President Trump's re-election, end quote. Again, this is from a CNBC article on March 16th, and this report and assessments were in a declassified report that was released from the Officer of the Director of National Intelligence. The election investigation was carried out by the DOJ, Homeland Security, FBI, and CISA, the Cybersecurity Agency. What I found interesting, Pat, in this report and their investigation also found that Cuba, Venezuela, and Lebanese Hezbollah also tried to influence the 2020 presidential election, but on a smaller scale. Trump's administration did announce this exact information and warned the public about influence coming from a foreign adversary. On the eve of the final debate between Trump and Biden, Trump did indeed have intelligence on this precise matter with info that it was designed to hurt his re-election. The intelligence report brought to light that some of these spoofed emails that were sent to voters claimed to be from far-right groups, one of them being the Proud Boys. Intelligence tracked these emails and found they started at a Saudi company network. What is also very alarming is that a Russian group, Energetic Bear, are focusing their eyes on gaining access to state and local government networks. If this group gains access to local government networks, voting databases, this could be catastrophic. Could they eventually partner with county auditors? Who knows? But this thought is very scary and and very real. I I couldn't agree more. You know, the fact of of foreign intervention is, is, is... quite scary. However, there's one thing that, you know, has been a democratic calling point that I disagree with. I, you know, there is this claim that Trump colluded with the Russians in order, you know, to interfere with our elections. I don't believe that. Um, I just think that's highly unlikely. Um, But most of what was coming from the Russians and from the Iranians um, was against Biden. What was coming from China was against Trump. Um, Everything was mixed in terms of what sources it was coming from. Fortunately, our voting machines are not internet connected. And so the chance of them actually hacking into a voting machine and changing votes is, is probably not going to happen. But what is happening, as you said, is that they, knowing that these things are happening, is reducing confidence in this country, in, in the American voting system. And, and I'm afraid it will drive people away from voting. Um, because if, if they think it's rigged or that they think that you know, there's something wrong and their vote just isn't going to count, um, I think this could lead to a reduction in the number of, of people who vote. However, speaking about um, H.R. 1, there are a lot of other parts to it as well as the part that addresses um, you know, foreign interference. First of all, Iowa is not the only state that has placed new limits on voting. Um, that has placed what? New limits on, new limits. on voting, right. Um, at last count, there were 250 bills introduced in over 40 different states. Um, Despite the evidence of a fair vote in 2020, um, this bandwagoning, mm-hmm. as far as, as you know, doing limitations on it, under the guise of making it more fair and transparent and legal, mm-hmm. I think is a cover-up for, for really wanting to control who can vote and when. Iowa 
in no way gave any indication that what they were passing had anything to do with discrimination against any group. And I'm pleased to be able to say that. But in other states, that is not true. Georgia's is clearly, clearly aimed at reducing minority voters. I think Georgians are, are frightened. 51.8 or something like that of Georgians are white. And I think they are frightened that there's going to be a real change in their state, especially after the state went for Biden and for two Democratic uh, um, representatives. Um, but when, it, you know, they just approved this last night. And so I have to admit that I have not had time this morning to actually go into all of the details of what Georgia voted for. I did read early this morning that they took out some of the worst parts of, of what they were proposing. But again, Georgia is not the only one. There are 40 different states. Um, and it just seems to me that these are all aimed at limiting the number of, of people um, who would vote. But there are other components to it as well. One of the things that, that it would do is stop gerrymandering. And I think both parties have been equally guilty when we talk about gerrymandering, about creating districts that, that favor one party over the other. So on that topic that you brought up, which is important because um, Iowa has to address uh, the district uh, and redistricting before I think it's September of 2021, yeah. the state elected uh, leaders down there are gonna be uh, delving into that um, over the summertime. Uh, that is something that that you're really going to have to be cognizant of to make sure that you know where your district lines are, if they've been drawn differently, who represents you. Um, I, I'm just a firm believer that uh, election laws are really important and that we as citizens, um, you know, seek out and know all the other laws. So when, when all of these states are making some changes to their laws, I think it's really important that you do go online and pull it up and read it. Um, you can go to your county auditor's office and request the the new election laws. You can write your secretary of state's office or call them with any questions. You could even go to your public library and use the internet to pull up a copy. But I think that it's really important that we all educate ourselves on these new laws. And please seek out um, any information so that you aren't left out in the coming election um, and that you do know uh, what's going on. And Iowa has four districts at the moment. It's reduced from five, and at one time there were even six. But, um, you know, with that, the biggest problem with redistricting this year for almost every state is going to be the incomplete nature of the census. The census, that's correct. And, um, you know, we aren't going to get accurate numbers for population. Uh, because so I'm assuming that, that we will remain with four district. It's just that those lines might be drawn a little bit differently yeah. than what we're used to. Um, very yeah. important, you know, of you know who represents you as your congressperson and that you do know who represents you yeah. at the state level for your state senator, state representative, and that you're involved there. 
uh, as we all know, county positions are very important too. Yes. So, um, you know, it's just as important to get to those elections, uh, to the voting booth when you have school board elections and county elections, not just uh, every four years for presidential yes. elections. As Pat and I are trying to show our viewers today is that it's so much more important to sit down with your community members, get to know who lives in your community, cross those barriers and boundary lines and sit down and have coffee and get to know one another. And I think, you know, our country is a great country. Our state is a great state. We're so fortunate of where we live. I think um, we're going to kind of come to the, you have one more point? I have one more point. HR1 also has a part that would require greater campaign um, donation transparency. It's aimed at reducing Citizens United very clearly. Um, I am in favor of that. I, I want to know what big corporations and what big money sources are, are donating to not just the Republican candidates, but to my Democratic candidates as well. I don't always agree with the things that Democrats do. Um, I got really angry with Bill Clinton for a while. And, and you know, uh, and, and that's sort of funny because I voted for him. But I, I just was, it was particularly his work um, cutting welfare programs was one thing I was unhappy with. And I just wasn't sure about NAFTA, you know. And so, yeah, I don't think, I, I think that we have to give ourselves freedom from feeling an absolute tie to one party or another and considering what's good for Americans in general. Um, so to your point, um, with Citizens United, I agree that there are PACs and groups on both sides of the fence yes. where you really don't know when you write a check. In fact, uh, just this summer, I had someone call me and say, Barb, I want to give this candidate X some money. Where do I write the check? And people want to get back to knowing that their check's going to be handed to the candidate, to a staffer, instead of going online, putting your credit card. Uh, you know, another thing that you and I could sit here and talk for an hour about would be political calls. They've got to rein those political calls in. People have a life and it, you need to sit down with your family at supper time. That's something else that I think that uh, really needs to be addressed is the political calls. Well, I think they should become obsolete. And I'll tell you why. I have been on phone banks. And every year we find less and less people answer their phones. Because now we have all have phones who tell us who's calling. you know. And if we don't recognize that number... I don't know about you, but I don't answer. And also landlines are going extinct. You know, yes. the younger generation, they move from city to city, job to job, and they have their cell phone. They don't go through the phone company and yes. set up that fee and transfer their phone. So, yeah, landlines are are unheard of uh, anymore, really. People are really getting rid of those. And uh, I've heard from a lot of people that that's one of the reasons why is they were tired of political calls. So well, that's something we, else we can agree right on. Right now, I'm not just tired of political calls. I'm tired of... <laughs> Your car warranty calls. Those people are driving <laughs> us crazy. But yes, those are the things that really concerned me with um, the, the act. I, I do want to note, too, that there's additionally the John Lewis Voting Rights Act in the Senate. And what that would do is restore Section 5 to the original um, Voting Rights Act of 1965. What Section 5 did was... Um, 
make it mandatory for uh, states that wanted to consider their voting laws to report and get permission to make those changes if they had a history of limiting voting rights in the past. And um, the Supreme Court in 2013 did not rule that's unconstitutional or that it was illegal. They simply said it's no longer necessary. And I think with more than 250 cases out there now of people in states attempting to limit voting rights, that Section 5 may well be necessary again. Uh, so, so to touch on those uh, lawsuits in, in states across our country, many of those um, are are in the courts right now. We don't know the outcome of those. We don't know if there will be appeals, but we do know that there are a lot of them. So to try to keep up on those um, and, and tell the audience the status of those, uh, just go on and, and track if you'd like to follow those different states, those election lawsuits, and follow those. But I do see some of those... Um, having appeals and they may be in the courts for I think quite a while. I think there's going to be a lot of the lot. court suits yes. and I think our courts are going to be clogged. Yes. Um, the passages of HR1 might limit that um, because it addresses many of the things that states are, are trying to do now. And so if it passes into law, it may it may change things. Um, it, it's, it's hard to tell. Well, with that, let's go into our middle points then, Pat, and kind of uh, our our last segment here. Uh, a few points that I think a lot of viewers, when you listen to us, you kind of heard us come to, to the middle on, on certain issues. Others, um, we do both have our own views and stance. Um, one of those is uh, we have President's Day, a national holiday to observe presidents, and I would be on board to have Election Day a national holiday to observe our elections, giving many people another avenue to be able to vote. If they had not taken advantage of any of the uh, early voting options that were available to them, at least they would um, be able to have that day to go and and make sure that their vote uh, was heard. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Pat? I, I would be in favor of a national voting day. The only thing that concerns me about that is states, and I'm going to use Georgia as an example again, one of the things that they wanted to do was limit polling places and, and really reduce the number of polling places, particularly in minority districts. Already in this last election, we saw lines of people uh, lined up for hours, hours in order to vote. And I think that in order for um, a national holiday for voting, that we would also have to make sure that there were um, plenty of places for people to vote and it didn't result in, in long lines that went on and on and on and, and caused problems for people to get their votes all in. But if we still had early voting and we still had mail-in voting, um, it wouldn't necessarily mean that everybody is flocking on that day. Now, I, I think doesn't Iowa have, I just read this, Iowa had a, um, on the book, that a person could request time off from work to go vote. Yes, I think, I think they had, they're allotted, I think, a two-hour time frame with yeah, their employer. Yeah, it had been three, and right. they reduced it. Right, I think it's two hours two. in this, yes, in yeah. this new bill. Well, I'm glad that we can both agree on that, that a national uh, election day would not be out of the question. 
Um, I think uh, during our conversation, we both agree that Iowa has, for the most part, uh, safe and fair elections. Would you agree with that, Pat? Yeah, I would. I certainly would. Um, you know, I have never seen any any evidence of intimidation. All I have honestly seen is both parties in Iowa working really hard in order to get the vote out. And, and isn't that great when we go to the polling place and we see we see Mary and Jane and we know they're both of different parties, but they're sitting there working together for the full day. Yeah. Many of them bring potluck and they, oh. they just spend the day together and everybody is very civil uh, to each other that I have observed. And that just makes you feel really good in small town Iowa. It does. And, and you know, I have no, of course, for me, voting is easy. Um, because I live in uh, the Rock Falls Precinct, and, you know, there are not a lot of us that live in the Rock <laughs> Falls Precinct. So you run down to the community center, and you may be the only one voting <laughs> at the moment. And you get out your ID, but they know you anyway, so they give a cursory glance at that ID, and you go vote. I have heard that those smaller precincts with those women do bring the best food for, for election oh, day that they true. share. That's so. true, too. I think the, uh, another thing that uh, we can agree on and come to the middle is that in H.R. 1, one of the positives is updating voter registration lists. And I, I'm a firm believer that why why not have the most accurate information uh, if you can? If you can. <laughs> yeah, well, I think so, too. And I think auditors are set up to follow death records. And I, I think that, that they have the obligation to purge um, you know, people who have died from their um, records. I don't believe the Iowa bill carried through with the part of it that originally suggested that a voter be purged after failing to vote in one election. And I would have been really opposed to that. Who knows why you might not vote in one federal election? There's such a myriad of reasons that could keep you from doing that. And so I think that kind of purging is unnecessary. Now, in Colorado and in um, Oregon, where they mail out ballots to everyone, if they get it back, you know, okay, it's returned, can't be delivered to sender, then that person doesn't receive a ballot. Um, and so, you know, I still think that there is, is some um, potential in that. I'm really, really concerned, and you just mentioned it not long ago, about the number of lawsuits we're going to be facing about these bills and the cost that's going to be to the American, the American taxpayer. Um, Dominion is, is now suing Fox in addition to suing um, the woman who originally, but I have to say, I really had to laugh at her when, you know, she's in court for being sued by Dominion. And she, she actually said, well, no one would believe it, claim that outlandish. And he said, well, why did you make it then? Uh, that was, that one made me laugh. Well, and that brings me to my last point on the middle is that I think we can both agree that outside enemy countries are trying to divide our country and interfere in our elections. And with that brings a lot of falsehoods. It brings a lot of fear, fear mongering. And it just, it just does not make a a situation uh, good when you've got a lot of stuff going across social media that oh. is is um, not fact finding based, and I think I think uh, the reason why you and I are going to 
be successful in our venture uh, is that we are both fact finders. Um, you know, our our paths crossed. I've known you for years, and I'm honored that you stepped up to do this project with me. And I'm looking forward to getting to know you more. And I just see that, um, hoping that our audience grows and our audience can give us ideas of what political issues they'd like us to talk about. Um, uh, you can uh, go online at uh, Let the Globe Gazette know. Uh, Jackie's going to be uh, putting our podcast on. And uh, I hope that you all join us uh, for the next podcast. Um, Pat, do you want to tell our viewers uh, anything before we leave? Yeah, just one, one final statement. You know, a democracy depends on every eligible voter being able to do so as easily and efficiently as possible. Um, I think HR1 would stop the efforts by so many states to place unnecessary restrictions, uh, which actually threaten the very basis of democracy. As voters in Iowa and nationwide, it's our responsibility to make informed choices on our ballots, uh, await the outcome, and then accept the majority opinion and, and move on. Democracy is best served when as many voters as possible turn out. And I think that should be our goal rather than anything that tries to severely limit who can vote. Thank you for that, Pat. Again, um, our listeners, thank you to you. We hope that you follow us for our next podcast. This was our podcast number one. Um, our topic was voter election laws, and we hope you enjoyed your time with us.